We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. Could you go carnivore diet? Because that's a boss that's going to do in California. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. Because I have no idea. I tried to look through it. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. We're going to tell you about how we went on a journey for slices of pizza and ended up in a strip club. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. Oh, I hate those. I hate those so much. Continuing with our infrastructure series, this is part one of our episode on data. Please pardon the background noise, some nasally voices, and mic issues. Our hosts have been busy going to DevCon and then getting COVID again. Who are you? And what do you do? <laughs> yeah, actually, bring Eric in this as well. So, like, yeah, yeah. So, so give us a quick, like, kind of overrun of, like, um, what, like yeah. who you are and what you've been up to and, like, what you do today. Sure. Uh, so, my name is Dmitry. I've been working on uh, centralized and peer-to-peer technologies since... Around 2017, I first started contributing to IPFS and LIP2P, and then I moved on to work with MetaMask on a project called Mustakala, which was an early attempt to uh, create a light client uh, by sharding uh, the Ethereum state. Uh, I then move on, moved on to working for Status, and I wrote an implementation of LIP2P uh, in Neem that is currently used in Nimbus, uh, which is a, an Ethereum uh, client also produced by Status, uh, Ethereum 2 client produced by Status. Uh, and now I'm working on a project uh, related to uh, storage and data durability, um, centralized storage and data durability. Yeah, so once again, another person that works with me, Eric. Uh, my name is Eric Mastro. Uh, my background is mostly in the Web2 side, building websites and .NET and all the awful products that come around with that. No, actually, I like .NET. Uh, SharePoint is awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's where I actually work with Jared, who's, who uh, owns co-owned status and co-founded status. And yeah, once, uh, once Ethereum was getting popular in 2016, I started tinkering around. JavaScript side, I was just playing around with little bits here and there, investing a bit, just getting interested in the ecosystem. and. Eventually wanted to get involved in the in in the you know professionally, so got a job with Status, uh, working on Embark, which is now pretty much dead. Uh, it was kind of like a trouble alternative. Um, and then from there, we transitioned to the desktop client team, uh, which is still work in progress. So there's beta releases coming out soon, hopefully. Um, and then yeah, about a year ago, oh, less than maybe nine months ago, started working with Dmitry on Codex. Um, Currently working on the marketplace contracts, that is, the you know buying and selling storage interactions there. So, like, can you give us a quick backdrop of like the concept of data in blockchain networks and like where it all kind of started? Sure. Um, so, blockchains operate on everyone in a blockchain essentially shares the data. And this data is required to operate. That's the current model, at least, right? Uh, and this is, it's been addressed 
with di by different solutions, sharding being one of them, for example. Uh, I'm sure there's there's uh, there's other ways of dealing with this, um, but the just is that everyone had to copy this data over and over and over again, and by doing that, it added security, uh, but it also made this uh, the blockchain scalable. Uh, blockchain essentially continues growing in, in size, even if you drop blocks or the history or the logs or anything, whatever structure you have in, in your particular implementation, you're always going to end up with uh, more data accumulating just because you need to keep, keep some state around. Um, and the more usage it gets, the more it grows, better. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting because like when we started with kind of the Bitcoin vision, right? There's this really cool way of saying like, well, I can, I can trace back a piece of data to its or origination. Yeah. And you just have to keep track of the blockchain. And the growth of that blockchain seemed to be in line with, you know, hardware trends going forward. So, like, keeping track of this big thing was a reasonable yeah. thing to do. And with Bitcoin, that's still reasonably yeah. reasonable thing to say. When we switched to Ethereum and we generalized the type of information we're keeping track of, that's, yeah. that growth in data started to get really big. And then you start to think about, like, the different networks also doing the same thing and the growth of those things. Like, the finance chain, for instance, because it tries to be so fast, that growth is almost unmitigated. So like, is that a reasonable thing to try and do in blockchain networks and why do we try to do that? So the question is whether we need to keep this data around for blockchains, where yeah. that concept comes from and why do we need it, right? So, so partly it's because it provided security for, for the blockchain uh, and there was really no other way of doing it. So when you start to, to distribute this data across uh, many other nodes in the network, when you take a blockchain and try to break it apart, uh, things start going wrong because you uh, start sacrificing some some implicit security guarantees that you have in this in these data structures. So in order to do that, you can't just naively uh, chop a blockchain up in, into pieces and allow it to run. Um, and uh, obviously, the growth of the blockchain um, increases with its usage. So the more popular the, the or the more useful the blockchain. Gets, the more data it generates, the more data you will get. Is there a particular reason for the structure of blockchain data? Like, why why do we make it? Like, why is it a blockchain, and why do we put things in blocks? And like, what 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 is the benefit of making this data structure this particular way? And what kind of actually also what are some of the consequences of that choice uh, as it as it grows and we try to access it? Yeah. So what what we're trying to prove essentially is. Um, Sequentiality of events, right? So this is this is what's going on, uh, and this is why the, the blockchain structure was chosen, uh, and this is the fundamental property on on, on top of which uh, the, the assumptions of the blockchain uh, come from. Um, what was the second question? Yeah, like what are the consequences of choosing that structure? Like like what like now that we've basically decided on. We all come to agreement using consensus. We all kind of replicate this data across all the nodes based on the based on that agreement, and we build this massive this massive data structure. Right. Um, and we've come to a, a good way of doing that based on how we can do that continuously for a long period of time. What are the consequences of that now that we have this data structure? Um, and is that what what are the consequences of scale of access of like what are, now that we have this like what do we do yep. with it? And in, in terms of like I'm I'm trying to think of like. As we scale this out, mm -hmm. what's going to become a problem right. as these things become large and when we try to use them, how does like 
Does it get worse? Does it get easy? And why? Yeah, so I, I think it's going to get uh, worse. I, I think it's going to get harder harder unless we come up with fundamental solutions to these problems, right? So again, uh, <clears throat> the structures where they're incredibly powerful and useful, but they have limitations in terms of how they scale. And also the assumptions that we sometimes attribute, to, or the, the, the qualities that we sometimes attribute to these data structures, don't necessarily hold for that for that long. For, so for example, you have the historic state of a, of, of a blockchain. You don't necessarily need that entire uh, block, uh, block history in order to uh, run a blockchain. Right? This is the fundamental realization of, for example, uh, Ethereum, uh, et cetera, right? So the idea is that you don't need the state anymore because um, it's not fundamental for the security of the chain and you can essentially start moving it off and if there's any sort of, if these blocks are needed for, uh, you know, function, to provide functionality to your application or something like that, you can always store them yourself or you could uh, outsource that to a third party. So we are kind of moving away from this assumption that this uh, blockchain structure requires all the blocks, the entire history of the chain uh, in order to provide security guarantees. Um, and we're moving into a world where we, where blockchains are not necessarily storing all this data. They're trying to focus on solving a, one particular problem, which is uh, coming to agreement on a particular value, which is essentially consensus, and kind of leaving this problem of data and all of that outside uh, of the protocol and allowing other solutions to come up uh, or come in and, and, and try to deal with this problem. So the, some of the like the scaling solutions are literally saying other people yeah. make whatever data you want and use the underlying consensus network to give you provide you some level of security. Mm -hmm. How does that like how does that work? Like how does that like how do you get security guarantees by chunking about aggregating a bunch of data and then leveraging some consensus network to give you some level some level of security? Yeah, it's it's also a um so there are new techniques coming uh, coming up, right? So uh, verifiable computation with uh, zero knowledge proofs and things like that do allow you to do this in a secure, in a safe way without sacrificing sacrificing security, right? So it, we, you, you could make an argument that this this chain of blocks was required uh, before we had this technology. But now that we have this technology and this ability, we can we can safely kind of forget those blocks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I always thought it was interesting too, like the process of coming to consensus, like what we've optimized for when mm -hmm. we um, make blockchain networks and build blockchains is for the consensus mechanism. So when we're building the actual data structure, the, like the way we pass around information and the way we build that data structure is specific for consensus, which has this yes. interesting trade-off of when we actually try to access that data yep. and how difficult it is and terrible it is to like query it in some specific way. Yep. So yep. that also becomes kind of this interesting, fun way of like, like, that I think has only come up in the success of Ethereum as we got larger and larger and larger, how difficult it is to build applications that use this information. I, it, it's interesting that like, as we've built this thing out, which we found to be useful, and that you have like a scarce resource to put data, but in the process of building it, we make it really hard to query. Mm -hmm. And we also like, fill it up really fast so we have to figure out like all right what is it actually good for right like what is it 
And then you have this interesting like concept of like, if everyone uses the same space, what is the appropriate use cases for using it? And what do you do with the ones that like want to leverage blockchain networks, but don't necessarily like can't fit into that, that small scarce block yeah. at a given time period, yeah. right? So what are we doing? Like how do we how do we how do we fix that now that we basically filled these blocks up and we're starting to narrow out those use cases that can't fit into them? Right. Okay. Um, I think there are several use cases here, right? So if you, you're speaking specifically about a blockchain, this data that is being sort of discarded or the core layer saying I don't care about it anymore, it's still necessary for some use cases, right? So uh, Essentially, you rely on third-party providers to store this for you. And then the, the use case for specific applications, well, that's very varied, right? So um, again, you can use centralized storage providers, which you probably don't want to do, or you could uh, use decentralized storage providers, which are coming up but are potentially still not uh, on par, let's put it like that, with uh, centralized solutions. So we're in a bit of a uh, kind of hard place uh, right now where we have uh, usage is coming, uh, going up. Uh, there's a lot of use cases, but this fundamental problem with where does the data go hasn't been really addressed. Yeah, that's an interesting one because like if you look at like uh, zero or layer twos on Ethereum, they have somewhat of a data availability problem. After a given time period, a lot of the like the, the way in the, the scaling solutions are going is, uh, we'll provide you data like data availability for a limited period of time, yes. and after that, it's up to you to figure out what to do with it. And so, like as you contextualize applications and the data associated with those applications, like the base layer protocol, like the actual thing that's like giving you all the security, is saying like we'll do it for a little bit of time, and then yes. you got to figure it out. And I don't think we've come to the conclusion yet on like how that gets fixed. What do we do with layer two data? What do we do with layer two data? Okay, that's a great question. So like, yeah, we have the consensus yeah. network okay. now. Let's, let's, let's just take Ethereum as an example. Yeah. The consensus network is providing some layer, layer of like secure data availability. Yeah. And, and for layer twos to just dump all their shit into. And now like once it's gone, what do we do with it? Like how do we, how do we manage yeah. that, that like extreme data growth? Uh, and then like what are the current layer twos thinking about kind of figuring that out? Yeah. Um, well, what I've heard is, I, I think this might be this might be true, and what I've heard is that layer twos are essentially saying that they rely on the security provided by uh, L1s, and you can centralize the storing of this data as much as you want, you know, as long as you have L1s uh, that provide you with, with this data uh, availability, um, you're fine. I mean, that's the narrative that I've I've, I've heard. Uh, but obviously, L1s are also saying we're only going to be providing this for, for a very limited uh, amount of time. We're talking about essentially days or weeks, right? Oh, is that short? I thought it yes. was longer. Yes. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it really comes down to um, capacity throughput and being able to run these things on commodity hardware, on, on you know, Raspberry Pi. Mm. You don't want to... Uh, <clears throat> You don't want to increase the hardware requirements to the point where it becomes a um, centralized factor. So we could build these things with a lot more throughput and a lot more capacity, uh, and rely on 
beefier hardware requirements. But um, we don't want to do that because it obviously has uh, centralizing consequences. Let's actually dive into that because I've, I've always found that interesting. And this is part of the kind of narrative, like how this stuff scales. Because like for the longest time, people were like, well, Ethereum does 13, 15, 17 transactions, whatever it's doing for the longest time. Uh, that's not enough. And then you had this kind of proliferation of networks that were trying to just ramp up transactions per second in the consensus layer and saying like, well, we're fixing the problem. We're making these things scale by increasing the number of transaction throughput we can do. But in reality, what you found was like one of the main bottlenecks of this was the IO you had to hit uh, on the devices that were actually running nodes. And so if you try and sync a network, like in different Ethereum, you end up having to have resources that have, you know, incredibly fast storage access, which NVMe drives. And it doesn't matter. So when you look at like one of these attempts to like scale that throughput, like the Binance chain, mm -hmm. you can't keep up yeah. with, you can't start to sync to the network and ever get to the head of the chain mm -hmm. because you're throttled by how fast you can write data to the drive as yeah. you're syncing the chain. Yeah. And so you end up with this like weird scaling issue that we didn't originally see based on hardware limitations, which like you said, adds a lot of centralizing effects to who gets to contribute to these things. So like, is that something that you think networks are taking into account now? And like, what effect does that have? Some networks are, uh, others are uh, relying more on uh, just more capable hardware essentially. So it depends on, I guess, what your priorities are and who you're catering to, right? So, um, but yeah, I've seen both essentially. Um, and with Ethereum, in Ethereum's case, uh, Ethereum is trying to be more conscious on the hardware side and avoid this uh, sort of uh, centralization to due to, to uh, performance. I always found that interesting. Like, what is the what is the like what is a reasonable optimization here? Like, how much how much uh, requirements should we enforce a given like consensus node operator to have in the process of contributing to a network? And what's like what's reasonable there? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. Um, so it depends. I, I think this comes down to spe specialization of roles, and I think this is. Yet another thing that we're seeing happen in, uh, for example, Ethereum, right? So there are trade-offs that are being made. For example, the proposal builder separation, uh, the trade-offs are that you have a, a proposers that could be any, you know, that they don't require any special hardware, specialized hardware, but the builder of the block would, would uh, is assumed to be running on uh, industrial type hardware, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think this is one way of solving it. Um, whether that's going to be, whether that's going to work or not, I'm not sure yet. How do we get better at accessing it? Like, how do we? Because, like, like I said earlier, we're 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 building these things in such a way where we're maximizing our ability to add to the chain and increase that throughput. Like, basically, I can start get synced to the chain quickly and then start participating in consensus. But the the consequence of that is that. Uh, if I'm trying to extract data from what's been done historically, it's really hard and cumbersome. So it's hard to build applications on top of these things. Like, what are ways in which we can fix that or what people are trying to do to address that? Um, yeah, this comes down to, again, to, to where does the data, uh, data go, right? So I, I think that the, the 
the problem of syncing up to the chain quickly and all of that, that can be addressed relatively uh, easily. And there are solutions out there. I think Mina is one, or I'm not sure if they still call themselves like that. But uh, there, there's definitely attempts to um, essentially chop off history using zero-knowledge proofs and be able to then uh, sync up from a, from, a, uh, from a checkpoint very, very quickly, right? Um, that's one solution. But in order to like continue building applications that are useful, you still need data, right? And this data needs to exist somewhere, and it needs to be available, and it needs to be uh, you know secured and persistent. And you need to have guarantees that it that that data is there, so you can rely on it, right? So like getting to consensus doesn't necessarily require all the data, uh, and I think like the L1. Uh, data availability or uh, um, guarantees uh, that it's providing to L2s could also potentially eventually be um, moved off chain. Um, I'm speculating right now, so it, 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 it needs a little bit more thought, but it, it is one possibility. Um, That's weird, like I'm trying to think like, if we start back from the original narrative of mm -hmm of Bitcoin, yep. right? It's like, hey, we're, we're building this decentralized network where I get to track the financial history of everything that has ever happened. And that's a good thing. Yep. Uh, to where we are today, it's like, what's the point of the data now versus this original history of like, I have the history of everything that ever happened within this network, yep. right? And so like, there's, there's clearly like a drastic shift from that narrative to what it is today. And is there a reason to ever try and get back to that? Well, it depends. So it depends on what the use of the, 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 ch the chains are, right? And in the original case, it was purely financial. So the only thing you cared about is that your balance is correct. Mm -hmm. That's really the only thing you care about. And in, in that context, like the amount of data that you generate is not necessarily that large, and you could potentially figure out ways of dealing with it. But it's still the minimum amount of data that you need for a chain to be, to be useful. Uh, in chains that are more uh, general purpose chains like uh, Ethereum and others that have potentially an execution layer uh, and they intrinsically generate a lot more data, you can deal with this uh, in, in a naive uh, um, way. You need to come up with, with some clever solutions for this, unless you want to centralize everything. Right? And also so you, you have this kind of like, a, like yeah, the, the conversation of like, is this important? Does this need to live forever? becomes a lot more broad and generalized when you have a bunch of different use cases happening. Whereas yep. like, it seems reasonable to want to track the history of all financial applications within a subset like Bitcoin. Yeah. But like when you start well, dealing you with really all, track all, I mean, history. maybe like I don't need, I don't need my donut purchase or coffee purchase to no, go I, on chain and live forever. But, I think that is like, that, that's a privacy thing, right? So um, you probably don't want to track the history of all financial transactions, uh, but you do want to, be certain that the balance you have in your wallet or in on chain is the correct one. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting so distinction, that's, right? That's so, a like yeah. the, the the data structure itself, what we're aggregating is validity yeah. that something is true versus like actually being see, being able to see the transparency of that thing yeah. happening. So, like when the beginning, when you start, we started with Bitcoin, we didn't have the ability to um, obfuscate the details. So we needed those details in order to give that validity, but we're actually exactly. it's looking for validation, right? Yeah. So now like as we move forward and like that type of understanding is starting to come into play, we then are coming up with techniques to 
just focus on validation of data yep. for a given time period and nothing about the things. What's up, Eric? Just like, I mean, from the way I understand it, and this probably could be oversimplified, probably, but if you have a, uh, a value in state, and you're like, okay, I trust that value because you got it from a trusted checkpoint, probably. Yep. And if you really wanted to prove that that data exists all the way back from the, like all the way back from the beginning, built up over time, you need the data for all the transactions together. I'm mean, just trying to answer your yeah. question directly about why do we need that data. I mean, that's, that's why yeah. we did it that yeah, way. Yeah, in Bitcoin. That's why we and, did it that way in Bitcoin. Yeah. And so for L2s, it's sort for of the sure. same. Like you roll up all the transactions, or like roll up, for example, roll up, roll up some transactions, and like, okay, yeah, this is trusted. Let's put it on L1. If someone yeah. someone wants to challenge that, you need all the data to do that and just to prove that's true. Well. Yes and no. For optimistic, I mean, yeah. for ZK yeah. rollups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For for it depends. Again, yeah, we now have the technology to kind of not needing that. So zero knowledge proofs, which are really not necessarily about zero knowledge in this case. They're more about verifiable computation, allow you to kind of bypass that, right? So you don't need you you used to need that history in order to be able to verify it and then uh, say yes, this is the, the the correct tip of the head of the, the chain right now at this particular point. Uh, but you could now bypass it, so right. you don't really. But, at this point, you don't. But really if, need you, it. if you bypass it, then uh, aren't you relying still on an assumption somewhere of, of, of truth? Well, that assumption of truth comes from the. You still need a, a little bit of history, right? You'd you'd, you'd probably do this in checkpoints, uh, and you'd still keep this history around for some time. Uh, but you can then generate. You know, weekly checkpoints and drop this and generate this in a way that it's relies yeah, on the same intrinsic consensus of the chain. And that's interesting because, yeah. like, the way in which we're trying to give strong confidence in validity uh, is differentiated by how they're like. So we're, we're just looking talking about rollups for now. So the Ethereum ecosystem is the general mindset that we're talking about right now. But like that shift of. Uh, I need to track everything that goes on in a blockchain to I need to make sure that I can validate everything that goes on a blockchain is kind of where we're going. And how you do rollups dictates what you need to do on the blockchain, like the layer one data structure to give that. And so optimistic rollups require you to have basically all the data available on the blockchain for a given period of time such that anyone on the, on the rollup can say, that's wrong, I'm challenging it so I can leave. The ZK proofs are, like ZK rollups are doing it in such a way in which like you're you're putting the proof there. So mm -hmm. the actual process of aggregating all that data, generating the proof, and then putting it to the blockchain and validating it on the blockchain, you don't need all that data. You just need the proof to exist because yeah. if the proof exists, you can trust that all the things happen correctly. So that means you don't need as much history in order to like feel as though all the transactions happen appropriately. And so like I, I am interested in that narrative change of I need to know what's going on to I need to make sure I can trust what happened is good. Isn't it sort of like erasing, I mean, you're erasing history at some point. So if you, if you ever wanted to like, make, I don't know, let's just say roll back to a state or something like that, like you'll never have, you only have yeah, to a certain point. That's true. I mean, but you are, you, you, you're essentially saying that uh, you, the assumption is that you're not going to be rolling back to that state. Right. Right. So that, I mean, at the, the point that you generate the checkpoint, you know for certain 99.999, because this is probabilistic. Uh, percent that you know that checkpoint is valid. You don't have to roll back past it. So that last checkpoint is always going to be the unless, like you said, the, the application type 
maybe there's a some sort of I mean I guess probably for ninety whatever ninety five percent most of the application types aren't going to require that historical data, right? Yeah. Are there some types of applications absolutely that would require that? Absolutely, even even rollups require that, right? So rollups rely on the chain to provide uh, data availability, right? So um, essentially, if you shorten the, the the amount of history that you have on chain, then you're also intrinsically making this rollups um, potentially more restrictive, especially in the case of, of optimistic rollups, because it does have a uh, an exit period, right? So you do give some time to other validators in the network uh, to challenge or yourself to challenge the chain or the rollup and say, hey, you know, maybe this transaction wasn't actually correct. Right. And so you do rely on a time period period where you can provide this this uh, uh, front proofs. So does that mean like if, if let's say I wanted to create an L2, that that L2, the, the total duration of that L2 is, is limited to the amount of data that you store? Yes. So yeah. It, so it shortens your period for challenges, right? So right. like for example, if Optimistic is relying on a seven day period for challenges now, right. uh, and Ethereum can only keep it for three days, then you know, you're limited to only three days. It doesn't matter what. So there's a limitation. You might have some some rollup approaches that won't work in the future, right? With this one one week uh, period. Let's talk about uh, data, like just data durability and and what happens to data. So what happens to rollup data? What happens to uh, on-chain data? Yeah. So we we basically like we, we were kind of gearing yeah, up. Yeah, we, we were gearing up to yeah. that. We have we we. we painted that picture of, all right, so the underlying L1 is basically providing a level of validation that yep. something happened correctly, yep. and then all of the actual action is happening in these layer twos. Yep. What do they do with that data, and what do you mean, like, what does it mean to have, like, data durability? Yeah, so that's actually a very good question, what happens to rollup data, right? So it, it, it isn't yet clear, at least to me, um, how are rollups uh, going to deal with this, uh, with the problem of, of data. Um, and really, rollups are inheriting all the same problems that, that L1s had, right? Really, all L1s are doing here is saying, hey, we're not going to support all these use cases. We're going to focus on uh, supporting L2s, and we're going to rely on L1, uh, sorry, L2s providing all the, the uh, you know, application layer kind of uh, functionality. Or you, you probably don't want to run your application, your DAP on top of an L1 anymore, you probably want to run it on top of an L2. But that poses the question of what, what happens. We haven't really solved this problem of where does the data go. Uh, and and that is that is really a good question. What happens to this data on rollups? Um, I haven't heard, heard a good answer yet, although I've, I've asked around. And the again, I, I said this before, but the assumption is that uh, you don't, you can centralize an L2, essentially, uh, as long as the L1 is decentralized. And I don't think that that actually that doesn't really sound correct to me. I mean, it, it might actually work because it depends be on the function yeah. of the L2, right? But if you want the L2 to mimic what it means to be Ethereum, yeah, then it feels that feels wrong. Exactly. So, so I guess that the, right. It, Talking about narratives, that's the narrative that's being pushed now. And the narrative is essentially, as long as the L1 is decentralized, you can build an L2 that's centralized as you want, it's still gonna be decentralized. 
I, then, then centralized data gets committed to L1, right? Or so centralized state gets committed to L1 and sort of have the coerced state and the decentralized L1. Yeah, I mean, you're still pushing data on, on chain and you're still generating quite a lot of data. But you can do this in a, you, you, you can do this in a way that is compressed and it doesn't necessarily grow as fast as, as it would grow with all the use cases that Ethereum, for example, was built to enable. Right. So, um, but yeah, the, the data that ro the rollups are generating is actually, again, the, the excuses or the narrative is that you can centralize an output, which is weird. Because you have confidence that what yeah. gets pushed to the L1 is yeah. valid. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, what kind of like a historical guarantees do you get with an L2 if that that validity check? isn't sticking around on the L1 for very long. I guess it depends on, on again, it depends on which, which sort of, which, which kind of L2 we're talking about. If it's uh, uh, ZKL2, then the data that you commit on chain or the proof that you commit on chain, when you commit it, it's either valid or not. There's really no two ways about it. Uh, with an optimistic rollup, you do have a challenge period and you know, past that challenge period, once that, or once the data is dropped from the L1, you can't really do much about it. It's interesting because as we've gone from starting where everyone has all the data to yep. uh, no one has all the data to yep. I don't even know where the data is anymore. Yep. And like it's it's interesting to think about how this stuff moves forward as the the general term blockchain keeps being applied to all of it, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think this data problem is incredibly pernicious and I think it's it's uh, we've found ways of convincing ourselves that it's not a problem anymore but it is I mean like to be fair not all things need to be tracked by all people absolutely and the argument there most of the time is if the people care about it they'll hold on to it assuming that they have a certain level of cryptographic guarantee that it is good once they archive it away or like they keep yeah. it someplace right yeah. so like you only need that specific time period of like ensuring that it's valid when it happens, yep. then once it's valid after it happens, you can archive it somewhere and presumably cryptographically sign it in such a way where it can't be changed. So you have some level of storage and presumably if people care about that, they'll take care of it. Yeah, exactly. and if they can't, it should go away. And I think that's yep. a reasonable thing to think. It is a reasonable assumption to some degree. Uh, but again, to me the question is, where do you wanna put this data, right? So if you wanna, again, you might not need this data to come to consensus or to, but you might need this data to, to run your distributed or decentralized application, right? Let's, let's, let's think about it from a finance application, yeah. right? Say so like I want to do my taxes and for some reason I have compliance issues that require me to understand the uh, accounting over the past six years. Mm -hmm. Now that's way beyond the idea of like what uh, Ethereum L1 will be keeping track of. Yeah. So, I need to be able to keep track of all of the data that I've, that all the financial trans transactions I've made, say on an L2, yep. over the past six years. How am I going to do that now? Right. So, like, that's where you, we need to basically start coming yeah. up with solutions yeah. of like where does this stuff go and who cares about it and how is that like paid for for storage? Right. So, traditionally in centralized applications, that data would be kept by the institution, right? In this case, it's supposed to be kept by the user. To some degree, or the provider of the service on chain, right? 
Um, yeah, and those are two different things, but but those those would be the assumptions. So that, that has implications on like resource requirements of those people who are participating. So like Absolutely. if I'm an individual and I need to keep track of my finances for the past six years, I need to ensure that I have a computer that can handle it yep. and is keeping up with these things over yes. the course of that six yep. years because it's now my responsibility exactly. to do it. Yeah, and I think that's a kind of a drastic shift in in expectations of people who need to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it shifted quite a lot from from all the, the data is on chain and all the history is available to we don't care about the data and we don't care about the history. Also, like and you keep it. There's a network out there that I can query, as yeah, opposed to also, it yeah. no longer is. And if I didn't get it, I no longer yep. can. Yep. Or like I need to pay someone to do it. Exactly. So right now, like. You made this distinction when you were talking about um, the concept of, of data networks when you're giving an overview of what Codex yep. does to me. And that is uh, extrinsic and intrinsic data. Yep. Where extrinsic being like a peer to peer network, like file sharing, where the data that's being shared has nothing to do with the function of the network. Absolutely. And intrinsic being the data that's being shared is fundamental to the function of the yep. network. Yep. And so we've always had, in the past, most people have this intuition that. The data is required in blockchain yep. networks, and so I can always just ask the network and it'll give it to me. But yep. the mentality of that shift is that's no longer the case, and yep. I need to be start thinking about taking care of it myself. Exactly. So we've, we've shifted the narrative and we've made compromises in in some some functionality. But yeah, that narrative shift I think is is really interesting in that, um, like once again, we're offloading responsibility to the user by giving them self sovereignty, and. Yep also forcing them to have appropriate like computational resources to handle that and understand how to handle it yeah yeah i mean we we are shifting it i would say we're shifting it off the uh core protocol onto someone else that someone else could be a user or it could be an institution or it could be uh you know a, a, a web tree company or something like that uh but yeah, we we've essentially said we not dealing with this anymore, right? At the core layer. As a as a necessity of scale. Yeah, exactly. I still want to talk about like data and durability and why we need it and like specifically around the use cases where okay, yeah, your data is now not on chain. It has to go somewhere. It's either you keeping it or a service that you're using and keeping it. But then the question is uh, if it's a service, what is the is it is it keeping it on centralized provider, right? Because if that's the case, then we don't have distributed applications. We don't have uh, decentralized applications, uh, and we've kind of you know shifted back into the, the old Web two world. What what is data durability? Yeah, yeah, and and then and then like introduce data durability, yeah. but like for specifically for what it's for and. Um, why do you need it? Why do you want it? Uh, and how do you get it? I've had a lot of conversations here at DevCon with people saying, uh -huh. building a decentralized, durable data store, yeah. data solution. Yeah. And everyone's like, durable? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, durability is a weird word. I mean, my, my, my usual answer is like, okay, you know IPFS. Yeah. I'm just going to file on there. You upload the file on IPFS. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. no guarantees it's going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. So, and they're like, oh, really? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, if your file's not popular and no one's caching it, it might be gone. And so if you want your file to be guaranteed to be there, you need durability guarantees. Yep. That's Absolutely. Good. Yeah, that that's a very good description. Yeah. That's a very good description. And that's that's actually that's actually exactly what it is.
well, I mean, durability is not necessarily that, that but that's what we're, uh, like the effect that you get is what Eric just described. Yeah. So you want to be able to put your stuff on some storage and then have some guarantees that you will be able to get it later. And that later has some reasonable bounds, but they should be predictable. You should be able to say, well, in a year's time, my data is still going to be there because I paid for it or something, right? I get some guarantees. Some level of guarantee yeah. is the main thing. Yeah. Whereas, uh, whereas right now, um, again, as Eric described, you put your stuff on, on BitTorrent or IPFS, you have no guarantees that your files are going to be there. And, you know, they, usually it's mostly tied to popularity. Uh, in, in that's the, that determines the, the amount of time the, the file is going to stay in the network. And so I think one, one interesting thing that I, I found the most interesting about Codex, or at least just learning about decentralized storage protocols, is that we can actually get the same level of uh, number of nines, the same level of guarantees that centralized storage providers provide, can also be done on uh, decentralized systems. There's obviously some trade-offs, but uh, I found that interesting. I mean, you know, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Like, yeah, of course. What some of the trade-offs are, how many nines we can get. I'm not sure if there's actually any trade-offs, to be honest with you. I think if you build this right, you could you could get away with it without any trade-offs. And you could actually just fundamentally improve on what we have right now in terms of how we store data, right? I think that's that's the that's the takeaway right now. Because at the end of the day, like, if you think about what a centralized solution is, it's also a distributed service. Yeah. It's well, just one hopefully. company handling it. Hopefully it is. Yeah, like they have, like if you look at H H HPC solutions, the, the Lustre file system, yeah. you look yeah. at anything that you have to have a, sh a shitload of data stored that's spread across a bunch of different servers and there's a, some type of like aggregation mechanism for retrieving it or like redundancy issue of like when, when hard drives fail. At the end of the day, like if you get down to bare metal, hard drives fail. So you have to have some level of guarantees that it's distributed in such a way where one, one drive fails, you don't lose it. That's why we have... Yeah all kinds of raids and unraids and XFS and yep. BRTVS, all these things, right? And so when you think about the fact that when you get to a certain level of data storage, it is already distributed. So then how do we change that model where it's one person controlling it to the community who wants the data to control it and they all get paid commensurate to their contribution? It's not that far-fetched to believe that you can make a similar or better experience. I think that's a fundamental point. Where, I mean, yes, we do have distributed data uh, solutions, uh, and most data centers hopefully are distributed. Um, but making, taking that a step further, making it decentralized is what has been incredibly hard. And that's what we've been trying to do for the past, I don't know, you know, ever since we've, we've got peer to peer network, uh, networking and file sharing, we've been kind of chasing this thing where we, we want to get durability, but we, we're not necessarily very good at articulating data. Either. I haven't seen that being articulated very well in, in, in li li literature and, and just uh, in the communities, et cetera. So, I mean, like, why don't just the first thing came to my mind when we started talking about uh, that is that if, if in a decentralized world, a drive or a node goes down and you need to repair, yep. you got to download the whole data set. Yep. And that's taxing on the network when you've got terabyte data sets. So, we can distribute it in a way that requires us to not have to download the entire data set. So it's, we can use things like retelement and erasure coding where we only need to get K blocks downloaded from the data set to repair 
particular slot or whatever that, that, were, that were hosting. Yeah, I mean, you'd still have to get the exact same amount of data that that, that, that failed. That failed uh, right, with your right. original data. But, but you would be able replication side. So like like if you if you're using the old school way of replicating data across the network, it kind of probably works well for centralized systems. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. I mean, we most data centers are moving towards using erasure coding because it is uh, plain and simple better, and uh, the computational trade-offs that existed uh, in the past are now being slowly kind of uh, uh, pushed out with new codes, with new. Uh, solutions to old codes, etc. So that's an interesting thing to 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 talk about. But, so, it, but it's the network load. I think that's inter interesting for me because in centralized solutions, yeah, you just download the data set. It's fine. But yeah. with a decentralized solution, we've got other things going on on the network that quickly um, can bottleneck it. Like talking to the like, DHT, for example, trying to find all the CIDs, maybe of a, a terabyte data set or something like that. You can start to be you have all the same the same problems in a in a in a in a in a centralized um, 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 data center data center yeah so I mean because at the end of the day they're distributed the only thing that makes right. them different from I mean there's many things that makes make them different but in this context what makes them different is from a, a decentralized solution versus a centralized solution is that you're delegating trust to this one uh, entity. It controls all the hardware. It doesn't have any. It doesn't have any Byzantine behavior in its in the network. It might have some, but uh, you know, it's it's a trusted network essentially. Yeah, Byzantine behavior through faults, not through. You have Byzantine behavior exactly right, through right. faults, not <laughs> not not through malicious actors. Yep. So that's that's the difference, right? So once you start taking it, so we we've had the technology to kind of build this right, even though. Most people still use replications, replication over, over ratio coding because of the computational trade-offs. Uh, that is, as I said, this shift in, in, in the centralized world as well. So, um, yeah, bringing, making a distributed network decentralized is where things start uh, becoming hard very quickly. Let's yeah. uh, cut it from there. Thanks for coming on. Talking about data. That's it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't even started talking about data. <laughs> I think I think it I think it makes sense to uh, like for two. the for the purpose of codex related stuff. Okay, we can have a specific se like okay. separate call on like what does it mean for like distributed data play? Like, because like all this 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 pur the purpose of this episode is data as a as a function in blockchain networks. I see. Right. I see. We right. kind of moved into. An interesting thing, which I which I didn't expect, was that like because the narrative or like the actual point of data and blockchain networks is validation. Yeah, and through necessity of scale, we've offloaded a lot of that stuff to alternative networks, where that's where Codex becomes interesting. Is what are they going to do? Yeah. Whereas like the the point of like like we got to the point of what is a blockchain network data for and that's yep. validation that's it yeah like the whole point of the blockchain network and the data associated with it is validation of the of the actions within that network yeah absolutely and then once we have that that's where codex comes in is like well i need to retrieve that shit if you want to historical yep. context yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. and that's become that, that that becomes like the the middleman of like the, the blockchain network is no longer a part of that yep. now it's it's 
you need some other distributed service, hopefully, if you want distributed applications, to help you retrieve that information yeah. for any historical part that's like past the lifetime of what the consensus network actually provides. Exactly, exactly. Okay, yeah. I think that's like the main aha thing that we got to. Keep an eye out for part two of the data layer. It's quality, quality user experience.